printed page actually holds these kinds of utopian dreams in a different way than, say, um, the sort of ephemeral voices that you hear on the radio. How many of you actually listen to the radio anymore? Yay, excellent. Um, or even, so I do love the radio. I'm not, I'm not trying to diss the radio. I love the radio. Um, or even the anonymous code of the internet. Is there something about the printed page that allows us to, to is what I mean, what I'm saying, calling here an affordance or a, some sort of quality of print that allows us to see the ways people uh, had dreams for the future in a different kind of way. So I want to think this through by considering both the embodied labor that goes into working a printing press. How many of you have actually seen a printing press or seen it in action? It's like a lot of work to make it, put all the letters in and make the move. It's like these are massive uh, machines. So it, it takes a, a group of people. It's very hard to operate a printing press on your own. Um, so I want to consider the embodied labor required by printing presses and the stories and critiques we can read uh, in marginalia when people write in their books. I know you're always told not to write in your books, especially if they're library books, but uh, many scholars love marginalia. Um, for what they can learn about what readers thought as they were reading a book. Um, so I'm bringing together printing presses and marginalia, two of my very favorite topics in book history and print culture, and I hope you find them uh, interesting as well. So just to give you a broader sense, what I want to talk about here comes out of um, uh, uh, two chapters of my forthcoming book, which is called The Story of Radio Mind. Uh, in which I follow an Anglican missionary, his name was Frederick Duvernay, uh, from Toronto to the upper northwest Pacific coast in what is now British Columbia. And in very annoying Canadian fashion, I'm telling you, that's Alaska. So now you can know where Canada is. But I'm sure you all would have known that anyways. And then down here is Washington State. So it's around, I'll be talking about a man who lived around here, Prince Rupert, and uh, an Anglican mission up in up this river. So it's very, very northwest. Um, over the, there he is, Frederick Duvernay. Over the course of his journeys on indigenous land, he told stories using many media, including print, photographs, and what he called radio mind, which was a kind of telepathic uh, way, form of communication. I'll, I'll explain it more in a little bit. So he recounts tales of transformation that we might often imagine as spiritual, like converting people to Christianity, as well as kind of secular stories about or what, we, what we might consider secular stories about earthly process such as building the railway or real estate speculation. So DuVernay and, and, the, and other missionaries and, and colonial agents around him offer a window onto how Canada was a nation that was sort of invented through stories. I would say the United States is also a nation invented through stories and those stories keep keep coming, and so it's really important that we think critically about them, and sometimes that we even contribute some stories of our own. So told across traditions of, of Christian witnessing, legal battles, indigenous forms of storytelling, these stories are bound within what I call a spiritual politics that requires some untangling. So missionaries, settlers, white settlers, and indigenous peoples interacted with each other on the Northwest Coast through telling stories. And they were all shaped by what we now in the digital age might call slow media. So glass plate photography it takes a really long time to take a glass plate photograph. People have to stand there for 
minutes while you do it. The printing press, hand-drawn maps, and eventually the radio. So I tell the story of Radio Mind through considering how these media worked on souls and worked on land, transforming the land. So when a wave of missionaries in the 19th century uh, fanned out across the British Empire, their storytelling protocols, their understanding of what made a good story, depended on, on genres of confession and testimony, so getting people to confess their sins and testify to their new Christianity. Um, these stories were printed and reprinted again and again, and missionary writing circulated in an international network of print culture. And these little, uh, not so professional looking, uh, missionary journals were totally essential to the financial solvency of missions because they sold these to people back home and they made their they really depended on the money they made through sold, selling these kinds of missionary writings for their missionary work. It wasn't only the, the only money that they depended on, but it was part of it. So it's part of a system that uh, a scholar called Christopher Bracken has called postal colonial because these were writings that, that traveled through the mail. And stories, stories that traveled through the mail in exchange for cash. Uh, along the way, however, on the Northwest Coast and elsewhere, these missionary storytellers encountered and, and clashed with other storytellers, including indigenous peoples and anthropologists. I'm not going to talk about the anthropologists today, but that's also an interesting story. In relationships between Protestant missionaries and indigenous peoples, the words of the testimony were only part of the story. The medium through which people channeled their testimonies, whether it was a totem pole or whether it was a printing press, really mattered to uh, what counted as a good story. And a story uh, gains authority and credibility based on who tells it, who listens to it, where it is told, and what medium its teller uses. These are all things that equally apply to the spiritual politics of today. Uh, and the spiritual politics of, of missionary indigenous relations in the early 20th century Northwest Coast. So indigenous people asserting sovereignty in North America, uh, for example, have fought for the right to use oral history, uh, oral narrative, as legal evidence in court cases. And this has been a big fight, both in Canada and the US. Um, courts, of course, have long depended on texts, things written down on paper as true legal evidence, but now oral history has a, has a new kind of purchase of some sort uh, in legal cases. But at the same time, some indigenous nations and elders place restrictions on the circulation of powerful stories, insisting that, that people who tell stories and the audiences who hear them have to be authorized through, through ceremony or through protocol to participate in a story's telling. Not every story should be told to every person. Um, so a, a story's form of mediation uh, and its documentation, the way it works in law, and the public audiences to whom it, it is addressed all matter for the power of a story. In North America, an oral narrative passed down by mouth, a story written down as scripture in the Bible or as history in a textbook, uh, and a case presented in a court as legal precedent enjoy different levels of credibility depending on their context. Now, according to some scholars of history of media, the entire history of the world can be ordered in terms of how human beings have mediated stories, truths, and information to each other. Um, 
Anthony Beavers is one history, a historian of media who divides history into four information revolutions signaled by writing, printing, multimedia, including radio, and then digital media. And he suggests that with each revolution, people gain the ability to circulate writing and images faster, farther, and in greater quantities, making use of an increasingly broad array of the physical senses to communicate information. I don't know if that's true or not, because when you see people sitting on their phone, I'm not sure how many of their physical senses they're using, but we can discuss that later. Um, according to Anthony Beavers in his timeline, the digital revolution marks the arrival of built networks in which human beings and computers together create and manipulate information that can be easily stored and readily accessed or also hidden and forgotten. Um, now these shifts in mediation are perhaps less revolutionary than many scholars have suggested. New media never completely replaced the old. Um, many people still love books, and totem poles have actually encountered a revitalization on the Northwest Coast, interestingly. But new inf information technologies do have very real consequences for our hopes and fears about how we relate to each other, for how we understand what the mind is, what the spirit is, and the powers of the mind and the spirit and also for the natural environment. So when I taught that course on the internet with the environmental scientist, I learned a lot about the minerals we need to use our devices and the, the effects of the waste we produce when we throw out our phones and our computers. That's also a depressing story, which I will not tell you uh, today. So the spectrum of senses at play in Christian stories of the spirit made it possible for colonial missionaries to find overlaps with with what I call cosmologies of mediation within the cultures that they visited. So different cultures have different understandings of what media are good for telling a story. But yeah, at the same time, Christian missionaries had very fierce battles with the people they were trying to convert. So for example, one of the people that I'm gonna talk about, James McCullough, was a missionary who worked under, under Frederick DuVernay, he was a bishop. Uh, McCullough was a missionary. And he dearly loved his printing press, and he called it an iron pulpit. He saw little of value in the totem poles that told the stories of the Niska people he was trying to convert, and he urged them to destroy their poles, cut them down, or sell them, cut them down, and then sell them to museums. Uh, after that, how many of you have seen a totem pole in a museum? It's a pretty amazing uh, sight. They're huge. And they are actually a form of history. There, there is story embedded in all of those crests. Of course, when we go and look at the totem pole, for the most part, not speaking for everyone, when I go and look at a totem pole in a museum, I have no idea what it's telling me. But I am still kind of amazed at the, at the, the medium itself. Um, so after the Niska were to abandon these sort of towering poles carved in cedar, the missionary, McCullough, insisted that they should instead tell their stories through confessional testimonies rooted in the Bible. That's what he thought a good story was. So he brought not one but two printing presses to this very small settlement on the Nass River that I, that I showed you earlier, way up in northwest, on the northwest coast. And he was adamant that the Niska should cultivate their most important stories by developing the ability to read a tree that was not carved into a pole but instead was milled into paper and bound into a book. Now, Frederick DuVernay, the bishop, by contrast, he was not quite as brash as this guy. You'll, I'll give you some quotes from the column. He's 
quite a colorful figure. Um, but he was, for a long time, the editor of the Canadian Church Missionary Gleaner, and he recognized the power of print. He knew that at this daily discipline of writing stories that traveled around the world on paper was what kept what another scholar has called the missionary writing machine shoving along. But at the end of his life, Frederick DuVernay turned to his books of psychology and psychic research as his preferred portal to spiritual reality and even to a kind of revolution. But we'll get to that later. So the printing press. So the printing press has, has a power to make stories mobile and, and proliferate. It can make lots of stories and you can send them out around the world um, in a sort of mass production sort of way. And it was a beloved tool of Protestant missionaries. As James McCullough put it in a 1914 issue of the North British Columbia News, quote, I want you to give me an iron pulpit, one in which I can stand and speak, preach and teach, and be heard over the whole valley and even here in England. This iron pulpit is a printing press. You couldn't say it more baldly than that. Um, so the North British Columbia News was a paper printed in England by the Church Missionary Society supporters, and it was filled with stories of the missionaries from this diocese called Diocese, of, what the Anglican Church called the Diocese of Caledonia. And there were many newsletters and many journals that come out of this tiny little place, which is kind of interesting. Um, some of these uh, journals were actually printed locally on the mission printing press, and others were printed in, in England. But they all focus largely on McCullough and his uh, amazing exploits in attempting to convert the Niska of the Nass Valley. Now, Bishop DuVernay actually tried to get him to rein it in a little bit and asked him to uh, fold in one of his uh, sort of vainglorious uh, publications into a, a broader publication. Um, but he was, he was annoyed with McCullough, but he also couldn't do without him. Now, McCullough and DuVernay both write very optimistically about the, their conversion uh, of the indigenous people in their writings, but they both worried about the growing Niska, what they call the growing Niska unrest on the Nass River, unrest about colonialism. Uh, and the Niska channeled their unrest through letters, through oral stories, and through printi printed protests of the Indian Land Committee. This is some of the men who are part of this, this committee, which was a sort of anti-colonial movement. DuVernay and McCullough were two men living very far from the lands of their birth, and their answers to what was called the Indian land question were not always consistent or coherent. In their uncertainty, uh, they depended on media that could tell stories close up, so face to face, and broadcast them afar in order to make spiritual political claims that they hoped would turn their new promised land into Christian territory. Now that these two missionaries could look on the land of the Niska, uh, the rivers, the mountains, the lava beds, uh, as lands promised to them, to the missionaries, was a conviction born out of a Christian story of evangelization combined with an evolutionary story of white supremacy. They were both the missionaries, all pretty much all settler colonial actors, were emboldened by what um, uh, Eileen Morton Robinson has called the white possessive. Uh, so missionaries understood that actually being white men, this is like in a sort of legal sense, gave them a peculiar ability to hold property as legal subjects of the British Empire and to take the land of indigenous peoples by way of printed deeds that asserted their ownership. But theirs wasn't, for these missionaries especially, theirs was an anxious possession. 
because they knew, they were very well aware of what the NISCA had clearly spelled out for them in person and in print. Quote, we never will, but there are seats up here if you, if you want a comfortable seat. Um, we, will, we never will admit that our ancestors possessed no right or title to these lands simply because there was no white man on hand to give them a title. So papers that mapped possession of the land were not, were not enough to claim Niska land, and the missionaries actually knew this. So historians of, of early modern Europe have shown, and of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, have shown that the printing press from its invention in the 15th century mobilized what I'm calling revolutionary spiritual movements. At the same time, some scholars have argued that the printing press created what they called a, a spirit of epistemic Protestantism. Basically, that, that solitary, silent practices of reading helped make individualism both a, a symbolic virtue and a moral practice among Protestants. That you alone with your Bible, and that was good enough. Now, as literacy increased among Christians, reading and writing became fundamental ways to know the self and to change the self. Protestant missionaries were especially diligent in making the most of the printed word and image as a vehicle for producing and circulating testimonies of Christians, both indigenous and settler Christians. They used global networks of print and distribution to build imperial imagined communities that framed North America as a site for conversion and for settlement. Missionary networks of print culture in intersected with colonial networks of power. They were didactic media that were trying to teach people to, to, how to how to feel colonial and how to feel Christian at the same time. But for a missionary to set up a printing press on indigenous land, cooperation from indigenous people was required. Just as with language translation, there was no way for missionaries to work with the heavy machinery of a press or to print in the languages of indigenous peoples without their help. So print became indigenous, in the words of another scholar, uh, to the Americas through the labor of indigenous peoples. And this is really important to think about. Um, so two of the Ianch printers, Paul Mercer and Charles Morvan, uh, actually were very active in the Indian land movement. Um, after see you later. Um, after, um, after they were printers. Uh, McCullough acknowledged the Niska men who worked with him, but, they, but he considered himself to be the printer who was in charge of the, of the printing house. McCullough was not alone in materializing his missionary printing dreams. There were Catholic missionaries doing similar things uh, across the world in New Zealand. Anglican missionaries also turned to print with a, a sort of colonial spirit. Um, is a really important book historian, D.F. McKenzie, who shows the importance of Anglican printers in making the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the treaty upon which uh, Maori um, sovereignty uh, and the existence of New Zealand uh, actually um, depends. Um, the printing press was not a spiritual medium with one voice. For both missionaries and anti-colonial spiritual leaders, such as Gandhi, Gandhi had his own printing press, uh, the printing press was a spiritual meeting that spoke across distance and, and really was a, a medium of power. The Niska shared this anti-colonial faith in the power of the printing press to assert their claims to a land that they considered their creator had promised to them since time immemorial. But at the same time, they also continued to claim land through totem poles. As the Niska chief Azak said in 1929, the totem pole was, quote, just like a history writing, end quote, that told the story of Niska families, territories, and traditions. 
So James and Mary McCullough arrived on the Nass River late in the summer of 1883. Mary gave birth to their first daughter, Melita, in 1885, and the family lived side by side with their Niska neighbors. Niska men, women, and children taught the McCulloughs to speak their language, and Mary and James, and perhaps even Melita, taught them to speak English in return. In 1893, McCullough received his first printing press, a gift from the Church of England's Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge. It was likely an Albion press for any of the critical bibliographers here who care about these kinds of things. Uh, and it was a one-ton mass of iron that journeyed from England and had to travel up a river in what was likely a very uh, small boat uh, to get to its destination. The eager missionary learned to use the press along with a group of young Niska men whom he called in print McCullough's Indian Boys, which is not a very nice way to put it. Uh, in the Niska understanding of community, however, most of these young men were among those who were expected to take up chiefly names later in their lives. And two of them, as I said before, Paul Mercer and Charles Morvan, also would take up roles in the Indian land movement and as clergy in the Anglican church. So together, McCullough and the Niska printers published translations of the Bible into the Niska language, as well as school primers, hymnals, um, and sort of chats for the white settlers. Uh, in, in what McCullough thought of as his parish. They also published a, a sort of magazine newsletter called Hagaga, the Indian's own newsletter. Oh, that's Palmer, so there, sorry. There's their printing office. Um, and this is Hagaga. So you see it's bilingual. Um, you might find it interesting to read the English one as I, as I keep going, but you don't have to. Um, so Haggadah is remembered now for its role in publishing the Indian Land Committee's strong views against white settlement of Niska land. In addition to Haggadah, uh, McCullough and the Niska printers founded several other newsletters printed in Ianch, and they were, they, were, um, they were very prolific. McCullough thought that publishing local color on his printing press was essential for his missions both to white men and to the Niska, he says. The Indians would benefit indirectly, for while they might be indifferent in regard to what I printed for them and just take it for granted, they will never rest until they know every word of what I am saying to the white man. I shall print as time allows little chats by the way and mail the same with a typewritten friendly epistle to each white man just to say, how do you do? Or keep your pecker up, etc. For McCullough, the printing press was an everyday means of community building among the dispersed, mostly male settlers moving to the Nass Valley. He really lived through a, a textual cosmology that saw words on paper as, as a medium for gifts of the spirit. But in the first issue of the North British Columbia News, a 1909 letter from McCullough, this was one published in England, translated the anti-colonial struggle of the Niska into a question of pathos, he writes. At present, our Indians are slightly unsettled in view of the rapid opening up of the country and are feeling sore at, uh, hang on here. There we go. Feeling sore at the idea of the lands over which they have roamed all their lives, masters of all they surveyed, being taken from them and fenced off against them by strangers. But I believe that when the settlement actually takes place, they will see it is all in the way of better days. It is the old story and as a very pathetic aspect for those who have hearts that can feel." End quote. So for McCullough, the old story of people feeling sore at the dispossession of their lands could be rewritten as a story with the foregone conclusion 
that the land had been promised to others, to the settlers. Now, despite his attacks on the potlatch and on totem poles and his determined support of settler colonialism, McCullough was sensitive to the importance of face-to-face -face storytelling for Niska protocols and political organization. He knew that it was important to take into consideration the way the Niska thought stories should be told as well, especially in the feast system or what was called the potlatch. How many of you have ever heard of the potlatch before? Okay. How many of you? How many of you know a little bit of something about indigenous history in uh, the United States? Standing Rock. How many of you have heard of Standing Rock? Standing Rock is the continuation of the story that I'm telling you today. Uh, indigenous debates over indigenous sovereignty and who has title to the land and the very idea of title uh, undergird all of the uh, indigenous um, protests around pipelines and around uh, sort of colonial incursions into their territory. You'll see a bit more of that in, in a second. It's all about resources. It's all about who controls land. It's all about who's going to make the money off the land. Um, it's not only about that, but it, it's also about that. Uh, so in May 1910, this sort of pathos narrative shifted when the voices of the Niska leaders themselves were included in some of these um, things printed on the printing press. That month, Hagagaf featured an interview between McCullough and three chiefly members of the Niska Land Committee. Um, in the interview, which was reprinted as a pamphlet here, the men clearly stated um, their objection to white settlement of their land. So, I'm going to read a longer quote from this, but I think it's important to hear what they say. We want to be free on our own land. We don't want to be restricted to the reserve. If we want to make a salmon trap in a certain stream, we expect to be free to do it, just as our ancestors did. If we want to cut timber for building purposes or for building purposes or firewood, we do not expect to have to go and buy a license to do so. We have always made these demands. We never will admit that our ancestors possessed no right or title to these lands simply because there was no white man on hand to give them a title. From time immemorial, they inhabited these lands. They took possession of them. They held them against all enemies. They divided them up into family estates, and each family held its own estate against every other and passed it on by tradition to the next heir, who always had to establish his title in public by means of the law known as the yuku, the, the settlement feast, the potlatch system. And now the white man comes along and says to the Indian, who are you? What are you doing here? Get out! We see what the reserve means. It is intended to be a prison house for us. Couldn't actually put that more clearly than the way they do there. Uh, and you'll see that this was printed and it makes its way down to the Attorney General's office in Victoria by May, what does that say? 23rd? 1910. So the Niska um, also said that God was on their side. They say, we believe our case to be strong because God hates injustice. We know he is on our side because we are oppressed. We can put our case into his hands, but the government cannot commit their policy to him. God says, cursed is he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. So the Niska printing labor provided the material means for turning textual and oral sources, Niska, Christian, and colonial, to the service of the land question. Uh, they go on in this interview to say, since 1763, which is the time of the Royal Proclamation, which some people say helped start the American Revolution. We can talk about that later if you want to know more about it. Since 1763, no government of Canada has considered itself free to dispossess the Indians of their lands without agreement and compensation or, or treaties. 
Mr. Justice Gwynne in 1856 agreed that the Indians possessed territorial rights akin to those asserted by sovereign princes, that none of their land can be alienated save by treaty made publicly between the crown and them. And then McCullough, the missionary, says, how do you know all this? I am a white man, and yet I had no idea of what you were telling me. How do you know? And the Niska chiefs replied that they based their argument on a speech given by a, a governor general on a visit to British Columbia in 1876. They also had a lawyer helping them who was also a former Anglican missionary. But the Niska also used their printing press for more direct action. The same month that they printed this interview, they also printed this protest. After there was a very annoying settler who was taking land that they said was not rightfully his. They tried to meet with him. They wrote letters to him. He wouldn't leave. Uh, and they print this, this flyer on May 17, 1910. And they expand their specific conflict with this one settler into a universal declaration of Indian protest against white settlers coming into the Ianch Valley Nass River, British Columbia. So again, they cite the 1763 Royal Proclamation and they um, repeat what, they, what their ancestors had said many times, and which they themselves had said many times. Um, nine days later, the protest document, as you can see here, uh, had made its way to the, uh, super, the superintendent of the provincial police, and then to the attorney general's office. So even those stamps on that piece of paper tell you something about the history of, this, um, of, of that um, protest on the page. Um, so both McCullough and Bishop DuVernay found themselves in a very awkward position of warily supporting the Niska protests. So they, they did su support the idea that uh, treaties needed to be negotiated for between the Niska and, and the Crown. Um, and, and DuVernay increasingly started criticizing the residential school movement, which is another sort of uh, story in Canadian history and, and, and in U.S. history which was basically a sort of partnership between church and state to take uh, indigenous children away from their families, not allow them to school them in a way that they couldn't speak their own languages, uh, force them to uh, take on Christian ritual, etc. cetera. Um, but both McCullough and DuVernay also said that this kind of protest was happening because the Indians were being riled up by outside agitators. It's hard to agree with them, though, since the Niska had articulated these grievances often, both in person and in print, long before any lawyers made it to them from outside. Um, this protest flyer and the, the earlier um, Haggagat interview attest that Niska printers put the arguments on the page themselves. Now, a few months later, a fire swept through the mission house and destroyed their first uh, iron pulpit. It melted in the blaze. Um, and McCullough was in a dark night of the soul. He was so depressed. He really, really missed his uh, printing press. He said it was his lifelong colleague, um, and he, he decided to go, go, he goes into his church to keep a vigil and ask God what to do. I asked the Lord about the printing press, but received no definite assurance. The people were at the time assembled in the town hall at a supper given by one of the chiefs, and the subject of my printing press formed the basis of their postprandial conversation. He always uses a fancy word when he could use a simpler word. The dish went round and $65 were collected on the spot. This was handed to me the next day, and I received it as the Lord's answer to my inquiry. So he doesn't say whether the, the feast that they were having was a traditional feast or a potlatch uh, that night, but he 
basically says that uh, he sort of divinely triangulates the Niska gift to give the credit to the Christian god and not to the Niska generosity provoked by, by uh, feasting. He really preferred to think of the printing presses as gifts directly to him by God. Um, he, he, he was a complicated figure. He was both a missionary, he was the magistrate, he could send people to jail uh, in the little lockup in the, um, in the settlement. He sometimes was a fisheries minister, and he was the uh, fisheries officer, and he was a local printer with imperial uh, connections. Um, he both wanted the people, both wanted to force the people to uh, cut down their totem poles, but also worked with them to print these Indian protests. So he's a complicated figure. Um, he eventually gets a second, uh, appeals for his iron pulpit and gets a second printing press, um, and and then goes on to use the printing press as a sort of metaphorical, material, and spiritual medium to hammer away at NISCO traditions of communication. He quite literally calls the printing press his big gun. But two years after he dies, in 19, he dies in 1921, and two years later, there's still a group of seven young NISCO men running what they call the McCullough Memorial Press in a new building, um, and they still pr print uh, a journal called the Trail Cruiser, and they were still leaders of the Niska land movement. So the printing press was definitely a colonial spiritual medium that became an affordance for conversion, but also for resistance to colonial settlement, for prayer and for feasting, for division and solidarity. So now I'm really going to sort of more briefly talk about uh, the marginalia of this guy, the Most Reverend F.H. DuVernay, Archbishop of Caledonia. Um, who comes up with his theory of radio mind in the last, about the last four years of his life. So DuVernay was not a printer, he was a collector, reader, and annotator of books. And these books helped lead DuVernay to a spirituality of the written word that focused not only on a sort of vertical dialogue with God, like in McCullough's sort of prayer move, but also on a kind of collective conversation. That also happened not just through speaking to each other, but through communicating mind to mind. Just imagine what that would look like if we actually could read each other's poems. I hope none of you are mind readers, but um, it's a bit unsettling when you really start thinking about it. But he really believed in it. This is what he says. The possibility of God speaking to us through his written word and his indwelling spirit and the possibility of our speaking to God through earnest prayer and quiet meditation become to us an intense reality when we believe firmly in the possibility of thought exchange between mind and mind. So for DuVernay, books, reading books is what brought him in part to Radio Mind. In my larger, in the book, I also think about his uh, interaction with indigenous kinds of uh, thought travel, thought transference, but I won't speak about that here. So he came to Radio Mind in, in what I call his late style, and I'm borrowing from um, scholar Edward Said. Uh, who used this term late style to think about musicians and writers at the end of their lives who are trying to sort of develop new idioms and sort of break through to some new kind of consciousness in what he called, uh, what Said called a sort of deliberately unproductive productiveness going against. Radio Mind is definitely going against conventional Anglican theologies of mediation. So Said saw late style as a kind of exile or alienation that opened up a path for men and women with deep experience of the world, people who in an indigenous context would be called elders, to lead others to see the world in a new way. 
Now, by 1920, DuVernay is a man who's growing old, he's confronting mortality, he had a number of health problems and was confined to his, his bed for the most time, for the, for the most part, after years of vigorous travel around his diocese on foot, by canoe, by steamer, by dog sled. There's no road up to um, that part of the Northwest Coast at this point, so you're, you're getting there by boat, or you're walking, or you're on a horse. Eventually the railway comes uh, in by 1913. But he had not lost his energy for conversion by a testimony. So in an article he wrote for the Vancouver province, a sort of secular newspaper in 1923, he proudly relayed a story of having convinced a university professor, no less, of the power of what he called intermental action. He added, my desire is to have as many people as possible by my method convince themselves of the fact and then make an intelligent and beneficial use of the power of mental radiation. So what was his method? It's pretty, it requires paper. Basically, he would have, he, he, he did most of his experiments with his daughter, Alice, his adult daughter, and he would hold, usually it was him holding, which is kind of interesting because it's often a gender division in this kind of like thought transference where the woman is the, is the one who receives the message and the man who's the one, is the one who send it, sends it, but he kind of inverted that. Off, they inverted it together often. So you would hold a, a pencil um, or a stick of some kind and there would be a sort of string on it and maybe a key or something like some heavy pendulum and he would be sitting in, say, Vancouver and Alice would be sitting in um, Prince Rupert, like 500 miles away, and she would send him a word letter by letter and wherever the, in, in his understanding, the thought would travel and it would Cause, uh, it would enter into his brain and cause a muscular reaction so that the um, pendulum would swing above the correct letter. You know, sometimes you had to guess with B and P or D and T, but you know, it was a very slow process of radio mind, but they would send words this way, and he actually got written up in most of the big newspapers of the day. The church newspapers wanted to have nothing to do with, to do with this. They did not. Uh, cover this at all, but he was in, uh, you know, basically the the equivalent of the New York Times uh, in Canada um, for this research. So I, I can't entirely explain why people found this convincing because I don't myself find it entirely convincing, but I do find it utterly fascinating that 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 if people were people thought this was this was exciting. And what he had going on for him as well was not just these experiments but a whole raft of literature of famous scientists of the day who also agreed with him that radio mind, they didn't, radio mind was his in invention, his terminology, but that telepathy was possible. So his idiom of radio mind was a, was a testimony of the spirit that was a, very much a going against orthodox Anglican views of Jesus Christ as the one mediator to God. So he had to miss the 1920s, the 1920 Lambeth Conference, which is this gathering of all the Anglican bishops around the world, um, because he was because he was ill. But interestingly, at that Lambeth Conference in 1920, the bishops had very sharp words for Anglicans engaged in psychical research and those who were experimenting with spiritualism, Christian Science, Theosophy. They were adamant that Christians must believe in the incarnated Christ, God become man as the real mediator, real pathway to spiritual truth. 
and they urged Anglicans not to be misled by the untested hypotheses of psychic research. Um, and they also said that psychic and theosophical views were, quote, irreconcilable with the Christian faith as to the person and mission of Christ and with the missionary claim and duty of the Christian religion as the message of God to all mankind. So Christianity is for everyone, and everyone needs it. So for an archbishop who was actually supervising missions to in the far reaches of Canada to be won over to psychic research would have really shocked the men gathered at Lambeth. So it's probably good for him that he didn't go. Um, but in his bedridden hours, he was poring over his library of books, reading works by French uh, philosopher Henri Bergson, uh, William James. How many of you have had to read William James for some religion class? Varieties of religious experience? For some reason, we still make you read that text. Uh, Charles Richet, who probably nobody's ever heard of, who was a Nobel Prize winning medical doctor and also a psychic researcher. Um, George Coe, Josiah Royce, other people. These people are, are famous in very small circles, but you will never have heard of them. Uh, luckily for me, he wrote, underlined, and drew on the pages of many of his books, leaving behind a record of his engagement with these authors. So his marginalia reveal an active reader who argued with the text and who clearly perceived himself to be part of a broader psychological conversation. So when I combed through these books, there it is, the Archbishop DuVernay Caledonia Diocesan Library, I kind of started thinking about searching in an archive as, as like, uh, as akin to the action of a, a diviner's rod or dowsing. Does anyone know what a diviner's rod is? It's a way in the olden days and still today, some people, uh, you can uh, have someone who's actually got the power to find water if you need a well. If you're living out in the country and you need a well, you get a dowser to come and find the well for you. Um, so when I first stood in front of this case, uh, it's in the, the basement of the, Anglican, of the archives of the Anglican Diocese of Caledonia, I ran my eyes along the bookshelf and came across Charles Richet's 1923 book, 30 years of psychical research. So he's an interesting man, he coined the word ectoplasm, uh, and he has this to say about the divining rod, quote, the history of the divining rod is pertinent to our subject, for if natural forces, underground water and metals, exercise an unknown action upon the subconscious mind, there must be known vibrations that awaken cryptesthetic sensibility, and we are brought back to the metaphysic that deals with the unknown vibrations of things. So yeah. Cryptosthesia meant a sort of hidden sensibility by which humans could perceive things without knowing how they did so. And Richet goes on to say that telepathy is one version of this. Um, now, trying to think this through, Richet did not, a term, not accept terms like supernatural or spiritual. Instead, he used this term metaphysic, and DuVernay underlined this word metaphysic. Um, to describe phenomena caused by, quote, the intervention of either an extraneous power or an unknown faculty of the human mind. So Duvernay gets his hands on this book pretty early. It's written in 1923. He dies in 1924. And then he reads it critically against the lens of his own theory of radio mind. And he also evaluated Richet, mostly unfavorable, against the writings of Henri Bergson, a philosopher who also served as the president of the Society for Psychical Research in 1913. And throughout the margins of Richet's book, uh, Duvernay castigates his wrong theory of mind energy, um, tells us when radio mind might be a better way to frame what Richet is talking about. Um, 
And he's kind of mad at Richet for sort of showing a lack of metaphysical courage for being unwilling to utter the word spiritual. Um, he often uh, will say, you know, often has radio mind in the, in the margins and will say, he, at one point he says, my article expressing the same about telepathy written long before this book was published, FHD. So he's, he's a bit worried that maybe his thoughts have been scooped by Richet and wants to make sure that he's, he's in the story. Um, so when I searched these bookcases, I, I felt this kind of, what Richet might call the kind of rhabdic force. I had a hunch or a sense that mind energy had to be there. Mind energy is a book written by Henri Bergson. And I looked for it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And then once I said for certainty, it had to be there. I was certain that it had to be there. Um, I found it. And it was heavily annotated by DuVernay's red pencil. It was a very exciting moment for me. Uh, and the printed page here with his notes was really an indispensable affordance for his particular kind of revolutionary spirit. Um, the archivist was kind of perplexed at why we were so excited because he didn't even think of these books as being part of the archive. But for us, for me, they were really central to, to being able to understand how he got to this idea of radio mind. So we photographed every annotation in his hand. He loves this little red pointy finger. Um, and uh, then I really found that finding Henri Bergson on the shelf was really the thread that unraveled the mystery of radio mind for me. He was profoundly shaped by his reading of Mind Energy, which was a 1920 English translation of Henri Bergson's book published, is published in French as L'Energie Spirituelle. And across the copious marginalia written that he left in all of his books, in DuVernay's books, Henri Bergson and Mind Energy are consistent themes. So he had, within many of the books in his library that were published between 1855 and 1923, uh, DuVernay wrote marginalia related to Bergson's mind energy. So that means, since his copy of Mind Energy was published in 1920, he likely read or reread these other books sometime between 1920 and 1924. Um, book historian Heather Jackson calls uh, marginalia as the record of a dip into the contents of a reader's unconscious mind. So kind of radio mindy uh, idea. And through, we can see through his marginalia that DuVernay vindicated Bergson's theories in part by confidently associating radio mind and mind energy as companion projects bound by their commitment to morality and science. So Bergson, just quickly, um, was a French philosopher drawn to questions of memory, time, and matter. Um, he's going through something of a renaissance right now, I think, part because some people think that his sort of vitalism works with a theory called new materialism, which we can talk about if you want to. Um, but most of this, in this Renaissance, most of the scholars ignore mind energy. It's sort of a popularizing, kind of embarrassing psychic book. They like some of Bergson's other works more. And Bergson, I won't really go into him here, but he's a fascinating figure who was a, a Jewish man, very interested in, Christian, in Christianity, um, writes about psychic research, writes about the League of Nations. He has a kind of pragmatic spirituality pragmatic psychic spirituality that's very akin to DuVernay's in a, in a certain way. Um, once he had read Bergson, DuVernay's writing became fully saturated with spiritual energy. He no longer filters his arguments primarily through biblical metaphors. He turns to scientific examples and authority for his testimony. And he remains cautiously critical of science and held a privileged space for the things that science couldn't understand. 
he was uh, also at the same time very critical of dogmatic Christian theology. He was really in the throes of a late style critique of all the forces of inequality, ineptitude, and pettiness that he could name. He was, in some of his other writings, you can tell he's a, he's a Christian um, socialist. He quotes, he cites another, uh, in another reading that he does, you can see in the margins, that he likes a, a, an author, a biblical scholar, who's saying that the story of Pentecost is really a story about abolishing private property. And it's really, it's not about um, the gifts of, the, of speaking in tongues. It's actually got these re literally revolutionary consequences. So DuVernay's marginalia revealed that he was reading as a Christian socialist, open to scientific discovery, and yet committed to pop to possibilities of the spirit. And it's kind of, um, he turns this, his library, into the, the sort of evidence and the, the authority on which he can tell this story of radio mind. It's just one example of, of one of the um, uh, newspaper articles. So um, some have argued that print is a solitary medium using a but using a printing press and reading and writing in a book have never really been solitary endeavors. Anyone who has ever worked a printing press knows how difficult or even impossible it is to operate one alone. A printing press works best with collective labor, regardless of your religious affiliation. And reading a book may be akin to reading minds, as a reader is always in communion of some sort with the thought of the author. Thinking about the polyvalent labor of printing presses, and the, here's a picture of Prince Rupert for you. Uh, and, and conversations embodied in marginalia has helped me to draw a richer portrait of what I call the spiritual invention of the nation through stories. And it's an invention in which the stories of one nation are not dominant and the medium matters. So the iron pulpit was never simply a tool to print letters on the page. A massive iron that required collective labor to operate and maintain. The press was a many-voiced medium that could trumpet Christian conversion on one page and protest white settlement on the next. DuVernay's idea of radio mind has had less revolutionary consequences, perhaps. Um, the, Niska nation, the, the Niska actually did successfully negotiate a treaty uh, in 2000, and now there is something called the Niska Nation. Um, but reading DuVernay's marginalia with care, we have access to his thoughts that could only have been preserved through the affordances of the printed page and his interventions on it. And analyzing his marginalia in the wider context of his work as a missionary bishop who resisted residential schools, something I can't talk about today, while encouraging white settlement and Christian expansion. We see that multiple visions of the spirit shaped radio mind. So considering this printing press and DuVernay's marginalia together allows me to make what I think is an even more important claim. The revolutionary spirits that were enlivened by what some people call the, the metaphysical traditions of North America can only be understood when we acknowledge that these metaphysical traditions were imagined by colonial agents living on land that they claimed to have conquered, and this matters. Such claims were and still are resisted and rejected by indigenous people who have re resolutely re repeated and reprinted their own assertions of sovereignty, sometimes guaranteeing these assertions both by, their, by reference to their own, to their creator and to the Christian God as well. So, that is what I want to say today. Thank you very much. I will be happy to have any take any questions if there's if there's time for that. Um, so we do have some time for questions. Um, Pamela, would you like to take your own questions? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Happily. The floor is open. Yep. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say that I 
people to make, um, I guess, things to protest and to create more things, or is it just because it was there it became a symbol mm -hmm. of how they were using protests? I was mm -hmm. curious, like, which mm -hmm. came first? That's a great question. And I think, uh, like, the way I will say I have access to what the missionary thought about the printing press because he wrote so much about it. And he clearly does think the printing press is a, a sort of has a life of its own and he 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 loves it. It is his most trusted companion. Um, so there is actually kind of an, an element of the printing press making possible something just by its very um, existence there. But I probably wouldn't go too far down that uh, road. And I think that um, It's interesting to me that it's it's through printing these like biblical primers, um, these various kinds of missionary texts that the Niska um, printers see the possibilities for print as a way of communicating. And um, the fact that this this very same printing press was was printing these primers and printing the sort of missionary texts and pr printing the protest literature uh, becomes a really interesting um, conjunction for me uh, of what, what the press is an affordance of. And so when a sort of non-living entity becomes an affordance for people's agency, uh, I think it's, it's um, particularly rich for us to, to think about how that's always sort of multi-voiced and, and it's not. So I think there's a, there, there can be a tendency, especially in the study of missionaries, to see them as just colonial agents who were um, uh, all about Christian evangelization and settler colonialism. But in this case, these missions, and, and actually kind of in many cases, when missionaries lived closely with indigenous people, they actually also often get involved in their um, struggle for sovereignty uh, and rights in different kinds of ways. And that's clearly the case here. So, yes. So I wanted to ask you about <coughs> oral authority versus Um, the way they address it. It's against white settlers. And so they, um, this is a, this is directed outwards. Um, and it's largely directed to these guys, the attorney general and uh, the superintendent of provincial police. And this does take it, uh, this takes its place. Uh, and by printing this, they are not giving up uh, the authority of stories told in oral forms or told through feasts or told through totem poles. Totem poles are basically a way of, of claiming territory, claiming land and naming one's family story uh, in, the, in, the, in the context of, of the Niska. But this 
printed pro protest takes its place in a much longer tradition of writing petitions, especially to the queen or to the privy council or to representatives of the queen, uh, because they understood the queen as the one having the, the true power um, in the Canadian system. Uh, and so they were quite happy to make, and they also, many of them wrote letters to the editor uh, to protest um, the colonial incursions. So I think in taking up print, uh, that didn't necessarily mean they were giving up the authority of oral tradition, because they clearly still have it. Uh, it's it's um, feasting, the feasting system still goes on. Um, but, they, but many Niska also still consider themselves to be Anglicans as well, and they've taken up the Bible. So it's not, they, in fact, they talk about missionaries bringing a second Christianity. They already had Christianity before the missionaries got there. They brought the second Christianity. So it's a very adaptive, inclusive um, sense of um, mediation, but it's not one in which anything goes because there are very particular protocols for what a story means in the context of a feast. Just as there are protocols in uh, how you write a protest. Those very sort of legalistic language, they turn out to different kinds of evidence, um, and then they sign it in this sort of um, way. So I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah. Yeah, yes, and then yes. Okay, yeah. Thank you so much for this talk. This was totally fascinating. I just learned so much. Um, you have me thinking a lot about the connection between the absolute importance of natural resources and land rights mm -hmm. here and the materials that these indigenous agent printers are using to get these um, these paper messages out into the world. And so I, I don't know much about Niska, but from what I know of other Northwest Coast Arts, um, wood carving is so important to that storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming they're working with wood pulp paper here too. They are. So is there an element of asserting sovereignty in the types of materials that are being used here? Are you I kind of play with that. I can't really go fully onto that because I don't think I have enough. Uh, but that's what, what. So when I say that the, the missionary wants those, them to turn, you know, carving messages into totems to, to printing them, um, that's kind of where I'm where I'm going with that. But interestingly, they also had a, a lumber mill because um, this missionary was all into sort of um, what's the word for it? Um, Self help. <laughs> There's another word for it. Being sort of self-sustaining, having their own, you know, um, having their own industry, um, but that ends up getting shut down too because uh, the, the story of indigenous agency in terms of resource management is a, a terrible story in Canada. Uh, and earlier treaties further east actually set up arrangements in which, um, in in return for signing the treaty. Uh, indigenous First Nations would have access to um, farming implements and farming training, and so then they started farming, and they started using the land in a productive way according to the colonial imagination, but then the Indian Act, which structures uh, all interaction between indigenous people still and the Canadian government, um, revised the, the Indian Act so that uh, indigenous people could no longer sell their produce off of their reserve. They couldn't go to market to sell their produce, so you can imagine what that's just one story of resource, how resource management uh, has been, um, any indigenous attempts to become self-sustaining in resource management were quickly shut down by, um, by the Canadian government. And in fact, indigenous protest was also shut down. By 1927, 
the Indian Act is changed so that Indian, uh, indigenous people can no longer consult with lawyers to assert their land claims. So you just see it over and over again. Anytime they, they get good at that something that the colonial officials claim to want them to learn how to do, then it gets out of So it's a pretty nasty story. You had three questions here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, I was actually really curious about um, when you brought up that there was like a certain ceremony that the Indian when um, they chose the, the legitimacy of an oral story that was to be mm -hmm. shared. And I was wondering if you could mm -hmm. kind of explain a little bit more about that, if you know, if it's yeah. as black as white as that, if it was like. Yeah, well, th that there are some stories that are not to be widely shared. So, um, so in my book, I tell a few sort of more kind of creation stories that are stories that people that uh, the Niska and another group that I talk a lot about, the Simpson, um actually do share publicly. But there might be other stories that I would not know because I'm not uh, Niska or Simpson, and I've not been in a feast where that story has been shared with me. So that's one of the things that goes on in a potlatch or in the feasting system. Uh, it's a place of, of telling stories, and you are ready to tell a story when you are ready to inhabit the authority or take on the authority of a clan name within the Manganiska. Um, and those are stories that I don't tell my book, but that I also, no one's ever told me, so I wouldn't be able to tell uh, even if I wanted to. Um, and, and so there, I think, I mean, I reflect a little bit more in the book on how like the, the Protestant sense that it's always good to tell your testimony, and it's always good to share it. And uh, you can see this uh, on the, the internet. People are telling their commercial stories you know, to anybody who will listen. Um, and that there's a very different sort of sensibility around um, when stories should be shared and when they should not be shared amongst, in, in, in dif it's, it's different, different sensibilities among different indigenous groups. I don't want to say it's among all indigenous groups. But that's kind of what, what I was meaning. So in the feast, the feasting system is a, is a time of storytelling and telling stories that have a kind of political authority and that assert a kind of territorial authority. Does that clarify? Yeah. Um, my question kind of pertains to something at the beginning um, of the lecture when you mentioned um, chokeholds being put in museums. Yeah, yeah. And I was just wondering like, what your opinion was about the repercussions of that kind of media in a museum setting. I think totem poles, I teach a class called Museums and Material Religion where we think about these kind of things all the time and it's really utterly fascinating. And I think muse museums are, there's a museum studies scholar named Ruth Phillips who's work, does really interesting work in this regard if you're interested in. She, calls, she talks about the, the second museum age in which museums suddenly become, not suddenly, gradually become aware of the fact that they have a lot of powerful stuff in their storage rooms that um, many of the original owners of, that, of those things uh, would not actually like the way they're being treated. They've developed kind of relationships, especially in uh, some museums in Canada and, and maybe also in Anaphrata here in the Senate is doing interesting work in, in terms of repatriating objects, but also taking kind of spiritual care of objects within uh, museums where museums now, in some museums insert special fans in their collection rooms so elders can come and smudge um, with certain kinds of artifacts and that sort of thing. Totem poles are really interesting because some totem poles were actually acquired by museums in a legitimate fashion in which they were sold um, by uh, their indigenous owners. Um, sometimes they were just stolen. Sometimes they were just 
found and taken because totem poles are not supposed to last forever in their original environment. They, they're wood, they decay, they, they fall over, and new ones are built to, to tell new stories and new, claim new kinds of authority. So the whole idea of taking a totem pole and preserving it in a museum is kind of counter to the original idea of totem poles. On the other hand, um, now you go into many, uh, there's a, there is a Niska Museum, and you will go into that museum on the Niska Nation. If you ever get there, it's really beautiful. I highly recommend you go. And there's a totem pole in their museum. So I think, again, it's a kind of adaptability um, around um, how a medium can be can be framed in different kinds of contexts. So the totem pole in the Niska Museum is not one that is claiming territory in the same way as, as somebody's own claim totem pole might, might do. Um, oh yeah, so in one of the letters to the editor by some of the Niska leaders in the, the turn of the century, they say, um, you have your, uh, your, your gravestones that you mark your dead with. We mark our dead and our families with totem poles through the potlatch system. Potlatch was also outlawed. The music system was outlawed as well by the Indiana. Um, and uh, why can't you just see that there's just like the gravestone? Same as the totem pole. It's like, why can't you just accept that? Um, and so they, they too drew these sorts of parallels um, as well. That said, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, where I live, where I take students, um, they actually built the museum around a totem pole from the Niska Nation. Well, it's half Niska and half Haida, and they jam them together, mm -hmm. and it goes up. It's really remarkable. It goes up like three flights of very tall stairs, and they built the staircase around the totem pole. So it's a kind of honoring of the totem pole. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, totem pole politics are interesting. Yeah? Uh, so you mentioned, um, that it incited um, religious revolutions in the way that people engage and interact with text. So my question is, with the rise of the digital age and digital media forms, like what are the major changes that you're seeing in the ways that people are engaging with religious ideas? Wow. I think we should have a whole class on that. Can I come back and we can just have yes. a class on that? Um, I think it's a really... Um, yeah, okay, despite what I said about you know phones not necessarily being multi-sensorial, there is something about the internet and religious um, discourse in the sense of not just words but also actions and practice that uh, kind of open up new possibilities. So there, there are, you, know, you can go on websites and actually get someone to do sort of puja for you in India if you want to you know, see it happen while you're in you know, Toronto, say, you can't get there. Um, so there, there are ways that that um, the digital realm opens up not only just sort of testimonial, word-based religious practice, but also a kind of embodied, largely visual uh, religious practice as well. Um, but I would say you have to accept that I'm the mother of the moment a 14 year old who spends altogether too much time looking at her phone and it freaks me out that you know what's going to happen to the future generations so i have a very jaded view of the internet at the moment um as i mean possibly we all do seeing as uh, how it is sort of debased uh political discourse in in the form of the tweet um 
terms of, I can't answer your question basically. It's too complicated. Yeah. Really what do you really think? Right. What do you think? Um, I don't know, I think it allows for so much more distribution of thought, but at the same time, it can limit the way you actually engage and wrestle with it in the ways that like in marginalia, um, right. like they were arguing with text. So I think when the information is so easy to obtain, it can be actually harder to really put into practice or context. Yeah, I think so. And when there's so much of it, it's almost like hiding it, like, right? Like when there's so much out there, and you've, I'm sure, all heard of the concept of the filter bubble, how we just see the things that, that well, either Facebook wants us to see, or I'm not on Facebook. Well, I'm on it, but I never open it up. But how many of you actually use Facebook? Fourteen-year-olds don't use Facebook, which is you probably already did that. But, um, but uh, it's, um, yeah, it's really. Although we see it as sort of like, you know, whenever you have a question, you can just ask Google. But then Google also knows exactly who you are when you ask your question, and it keeps feeding you answers that you may or may not want. So it's important to keep going to university and developing your critical thinking skills because you're not going to get them from Google. Um, I can jump in. I, I kind of want to keep on picking up on this question um, of Professor Aronowitz about audience. Uh -huh. Because I think your talk um, does uh, uh, challenge a lot of our typical narratives about print. Uh -huh. The first one is that print really has, it has to do with being public uh -huh. and that its benefit is that it circulates all over and that's where its politics lie. Uh -huh. And if I heard you correctly, what's important about these um, NISCA printers was not so much the circulation and reception, but the act and performance of printing together as co-laborers. That something about commandeering the printing press was itself part of the politics. Mm -hmm. And um, the ultimate audience might be these bureaucrats, mm -hmm. not a kind of larger right. Andersonian mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. So I wondered about the public, if you could talk about the publicness of mm -hmm. these documents. Mm -hmm. And then also co maybe compared to the marginalia, we tend to think that marginalia is very private. Mm -hmm. But just in that slide you showed with those huge pointy fingers, <laughs> the manicule and the big red yeah. um, uh, marks, I wonder if uh, he's implying or uh, if he's, um, uh, mm -hmm. If there's some a certain kind of public to these right. seemingly private marks, yeah, that's a good good question. Um, as for the NISCA printers, um, actually, I, it would be I would love to know how many of those um, flyers were published. I have no no clue. Um, and I mean, maybe they did sort of send them out hither and yon, um, and and this is just have I. I can, I can see this one because it made it to the archives. I mean, the, art, the role of the archives in this whole project is also something I reflect on, which you know, many people have thought about, like what gets preserved and what doesn't get preserved. Um, and who knows if the NISCA printers thought that, yeah, if we actually put this down and write it in this way, it will actually be yet another piece of evidence when we finally get to argue for our treaty, uh, you know, hundred years from now. I don't know. Um, I don't know if they had that, that kind of foresight. So I would say they definitely uh, see it as, I, it's, it is a public document, but, I, but you're right, I, I, what I want us to think about 
is also the, the labor um, and the kind of solidarity, perhaps, uh -huh. that uh, is developed through um, use, making use of a printing press. And there's even the solidarity of the missionary here, too, like of a, uh -huh. some, some kind of solidarity. Um, yeah, he's a complicated figure. Um, and as for marginalia, it just doesn't seem like a man on his deathbed would be making these marks for himself. You know, with these yeah. big pointy fingers. I think he's still there's some thing, kind of legacy he's yeah. imagining. It could be, and maybe he was doing it for me. He knew I was going to come along <laughs> yes, and read his quite books. possibly. Because um, nobody else has cared about them uh, until now. Um, that's a nice thought. Um, uh, I think he also. Um, I don't think he thought he was very ill, but I don't think he thought he was dying. He oh. was like really. He I think he he knows he's dying at like about six months before he actually dies. But he's still writing articles. Like, literally, his last article gets published 24 hours after he dies. Um, so he's really, uh, and he's, he's kind of uh, ready for death. He's, he's, not, he's not fearing it. Um, I don't really know. I don't really know if he, uh, you, can see how, you can see how some of the things he writes in his marginalia end up in his published writing. So he's definitely turning these books into published writing um, in, the, in these. Uh, and a after his death, two posthumous collections are published of, of his work. Um, and then nobody pays attention to him anymore, um, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, so he's, he's definitely writing for someone out there. Any other questions? Any other students with a question? Students or non-students with a question? Those were fabulous questions. If not, thank let's you thank you. Much. Let's thank Pamela Carlson. Thank you. Thank you.